1: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper.
2: You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
3: I don't know if I caused a scene, I don't really remember the rest of the classroom. I mean, he was upset and defensive, but I honestly, I just, I did not care. Like, he violated my friend. I knew what I saw, I knew what he did, and I knew it was wrong. All of those things, all those thoughts happened in a split second.
4: Welcome to the first degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter, and we had a weekend apart from each other. But I saw Matt, your boyfriend, and like I don't know if that's ever happened, and it made me really sad that I didn't see you. It made me sad, but it also made me happy. I was super excited
2: that you guys have like taken Matt in as your own friends. And I said that to him too. I was like, I would never allow this to happen unless I knew this was for real Yeah, (laughs) because I would be so scared of something happening and you
4: maintaining a friendship. But I was like, no, this is like the first time I've ever comfortably had that. And it felt great. Oh my God. There is nothing worse than when you're dating somebody and then they like overtake your friends and then you break up and... Some of the friends go to that side. It's like, this shouldn't be happening. And they think somehow they're still entitled to the friendship. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like, no, 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 no. Well, not. we missed you. And it makes me miss you more to see you right now. So. I missed you guys, too.
2: <laughs> I have some FOMO.
4: I know. Um, there are a lot of days today
2: All right, that are ready. all
4: great. So we're going to just jump right into it. So today is Wednesday, August 10th. And well, it starts off kind of weird with International Vlogging Day. So I guess if you're into TikTok like I am, I guess I'm vlogging. Then there's National Duran Duran Appreciation Day. And I'm like, can you make an appreciation day about anything? I think so.
2: But I'm into the Duran Duran one. Like Hungry Like the Wolf is sort of a classic for me. It is
4: a classic. And I like, I I do appreciate the day, but I haven't seen any other days for bands or artists. So I'm like, somebody really... Let's make the main appreciation day then
2: what is there like a registry of days like
4: how do we do it we gotta do it oh my god i love that okay it's also national lazy day which i love i feel like not that many people can be lazy on a wednesday but uh then it's national s'mores day and world lion day and national spoil your dog day wow all good days all good days yeah i don't even know how to choose what i like best so go get your dog a non-chocolate s'mores to appreciate to celebrate the day. Combine some days. I love it. All right, me well, too. was enough of that. Lots of days to celebrate, but let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety, because this could be you.
2: No, in the wrong hands, technology as practical and commonplace as cameras can have sinister implications, allowing predators to violate us in unspeakable ways. As a kid, you generally trust that the adults in your life will do the right thing by you. After all, we're all taught that adults know best, right? They're only acting in our best interests, aren't they? For most of us, these are the adults in our family, followed by the teachers we spend most days with when we're growing up. It's an educator's role to build rapport with their students. But what happens when a teacher does something so brazenly intrusive and predatory that this trust is forever destroyed? Even worse, what if the person it happened to is doubted and shamed for telling the truth? How far are you supposed to go for doing the right thing? And beyond that, how much are victims expected to sacrifice
4: and expected to be put through for telling
2: the sometimes uncomfortable truth? So
4: we begin today's case on June 12th of 2007. The number one song was none other than Umbrella by Rihanna and Jay-Z. And Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie was still in the top five. Moviegoers were going to see Ocean's 13 and Knocked Up and Pirates of the Caribbean. Is it Caribbean or Caribbean? I always get it wrong and I never know what it is. I think it's Tomato Tomato. (laughs) Tomato Tomato. Also, The Sopranos had just aired its controversial series finale, sending lots of fans into a spin. I know Alexis has lots of thoughts about that finale. I could talk about it all day. We <laughs> should do a mob, we should do a mob themed killing time and we'll get into it. Oh, that's such a good idea. So it was also, again, 2007. Many Americans didn't know it yet, but the economy was on a one-way track to economic meltdown as it plunged headfirst into the early stages of what would become the global financial crisis. Sounds kind of familiar to what might be happening now.
2: Totally. And the setting for today's case is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Located around 25 miles east of Lake Michigan in the west of the state, Grand Rapids is about 160 miles northwest of Detroit and is Michigan's second biggest city. The city also became known for its timber production and quickly grew to become the biggest site of furniture manufacturing in the U.S., who knew, earning it the nickname of Furniture City. It's known nationally as America's top destination for beer lovers, but that's enough about Grand Rapids. Let's talk about our first degree for today's case. Well, we have a surprise. It's going to be a very special episode because we actually have two first degrees. Their names are Cassie and Jody, and their proximity to this story will become abundantly clear as it unfolds. What we will tell you off the bat is that Cassie and Jody were besties and had been since they were little. Here's Cassie.
3: I was in classes with her like all throughout grade school, and we were obsessed with cheerleading. We thought we were going to be cheerleaders. Somebody made us our own cheerleading uniforms. So every Friday, football game, we would sit on a blanket and would watch the cheerleaders. They would let us, like, cheer with them. So that's my childhood memories with her.
4: The two girls' friendship stayed strong through middle school, and they finally made it to Byron Center High School, the same school where they attended the games when they were girls.
3: We still hang out and go to football games. And we, we have a good group of girlfriends. There's probably, like, eight of us, like,
4: just
3: typical high school girls, obsessed with boys. And straightening our hair for the first time kind of thing.
4: The girls weren't cheerleaders, but athletics was a big focus of the curriculum at Byron Center High, where Jody's brother was on the track team. The popular track coach, 40-year-old Steven Sanger, was also a science teacher and was one of those really cool, laid-back teachers that students just loved. I feel like we all kind of had one of those at our high school. Totally. And there was no pressure or strict rules in his classes, and it was this very relaxed vibe. And here's Jody, who had Mr. Sanger as a science teacher in ninth grade.
1: He was definitely well-liked by pretty much everyone. He was kind of the fun teacher. He was involved in a lot of things. He was the track coach. He was a driver's training instructor. So, yeah, he, and science was had to be one of my favorite classes. So, yeah, I... I liked him, and I liked his class, and everyone did.
4: Cassie's memories of Mr. Sanger echo Jody's. He was very very likable because you
3: got to hang out in his class. He was the teacher who everybody loved because he didn't ever have homework. I think they watched movies in their class a lot. So everybody just loved, like, if you got Mr. Sanger's class, everybody was so excited because, you know, you didn't have to do shit. He had a camera in his classroom. He would let students, like, run around with a camera and take pictures of each other in his classroom. And he took pictures for track. trek.
4: So at Byron Center High, there were loosely supervised free or study periods, which overlapped with some of the lunch periods, depending on what your class schedule was that day. During their free periods, students could come and go from specified classrooms pretty freely. The idea was that you could catch up on homework or read a book or ask a teacher if you were behind on anything.
2: Right, and on June 12th of 2007, 15-year-old Cassie showed up to Mr. Sanger's study class. There she saw some friends of hers drawing on the whiteboard in the back of the classroom. And her best friend Jody was also there too. This was one of the final full days of the school year, so the energy was teeming with students really eager to be on summer break. You can kind of imagine it.
3: Ended up stopping at Mr. Sanger's class because that's where all my friends were at. I just walked right in. Nobody knew I was coming. A couple of my guy friends were like
4: doodling on the whiteboard. While this was going on, Jody was standing at Mr. Sanger's desk as he graded and went over her test. Position-wise, he was sitting in his chair behind his desk. Cassie was also standing close by when this was going on. And here's Jody.
1: He called me up to the back to his desk to go over a test and and grade it with me there. I was standing behind his desk. He must have turned his chair towards me and had his legs straddled around me and was quite close. And he kept glancing down and I looked down to see what he was looking at. So at the time, Cassie was standing close to
2: Mr. Sanger's desk also, and remembers this moment well.
1: I
3: still remember what she was wearing. She was wearing a blue shirt and a white skirt and she kind of had her legs kind of standing apart. She's on the taller side. And she was kind of like flinched over and they were going over their test and I was sitting and talking to them and then I saw a camera in his hand. He has one hand on his pen and then one hand with a camera.
4: Jody can also recall what was happening precisely. And I saw his other arm was positioned under my skirt
1: with a camera in his hand. So I kind of, you know, shifted my stance a little bit and grabbed my skirt around the bottom so it wouldn't flare out so much. But I kind of just froze in shock, not knowing what to do.
2: Cassie was in shock watching what was happening. The camera was aimed right under Jody's skirt. And she could see what looked like a light on the camera blinking, indicating that was on or recording. In real time, Cassie could see a visual of her friend's underwear on the screen of this camera being held by her teacher. And Cassie
4: felt sick. What was happening and why was Mr. Sanger doing this? Cassie freaked out while Jody stood there just completely in shock. Cassie grabbed her friend and led her to the back of the classroom.
3: I think she was processing. I don't know if I caused a scene. I don't really remember the rest of the classroom.
2: So let's pause for a second and talk about exactly what was going on here. What Mr. Sanger was doing is called upskirting. So we'll expand upon that later, but to give you a summary, upskirting is defined as taking a non-consensual, sexually intrusive photograph or video that allows someone to look up a woman's dress or skirt. It's a really disgusting and violating thing to do, and in this case, made more horrifying by the fact that a teacher had done it and was doing it to a child. And while Cassie probably wasn't familiar with upskirting as a term when she was in ninth grade— She knew that whatever it was that she was seeing was wrong, and her blood was boiling.
4: So Cassie made a beeline for Mr. Sanger's desk. She grabbed his laptop and turned it towards her and started looking through it. She was seething with anger for what this teacher had just done to her best friend.
3: And then I walk back to the front, and I take his laptop over, and I'm starting to look through his laptop, and he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I know what you did. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for anything on your computer. And he was very upset at me. But I honestly, I just, I did not care. He violated my friend. Like when it happens, the first thing I did is I looked at the clock because I knew what I saw. I knew what he did. And I knew it was wrong. All of those things, all those thoughts happened in a split second.
4: Cassie demanded to see what was on Mr. Singer's camera, but he wouldn't show her. Ultimately, she didn't find anything on his laptop as she searched for other images to corroborate what she had just seen. The casual, cunning way that he'd just done this made it seem like he's done this before, and she was looking for any other proof that she could find on his computer.
2: Right, and as far as what Mr. Sanger was doing and his response to the student rifling through his things, he was pissed The whole thing was very uncomfortable, but Cassie didn't give a shit that she could possibly get in trouble for this because she could hear the voice of another adult in her head, her dad's. Like lots of fathers, he was the king of one-liner wisdom. And Cassie's dad always told her to only be rude for a good reason.
3: Honestly, I think it was part of the way I was raised. Like I'm, I'm usually very kind, but when you make me mad, (laughs) I get upset. I grew up like, you know what? If, if you are the bully, guess what? You're going to get in trouble. But if you are standing up for somebody who is being bullied, I don't care if you get in trouble at school or not. Like that kind of rules was instilled on me. My dad told me if I was rude, I better be rude for a reason. So when this event happened, I was rude, but I had a reason to
2: be rude.
4: Mr. Sanger later tried to show Cassie his camera, proving that he hadn't taken any images of Jody. But by this stage, enough time had passed for him to delete it if he wanted to. The moments immediately after the crime occurred were kind of a blur for Jody. After class, Cassie and Jody left to discuss what had just happened outside in the hallway. There was no doubt in either of the girls' minds about the seriousness of what had just occurred.
3: Hi. I walk with my friend Jody to the lockers, and she's like. I think he just took a picture of my skirt. And she's like, what should I do? And I said, you have to go to the office. So she goes to the office. I go back to my classes for the rest of the day.
2: So Jody, in shock, did go and speak with the school counselor.
1: I go to the counselor's office. He had me tell him everything that happened. And then I wrote it all down and was sent back to class. Nothing else happened the rest of that day. I went home on the school bus as usual. When I got home, I called my mom and told her what happened. And her and my dad rushed home to be with me. And we went up to the school to talk to our principal. My dad was very, very upset. And my mom is like me and just was very emotional. Needless to say,
2: the principal's response to Jody's account was pretty disappointing.
1: He didn't really seem to care too much or didn't believe me or was just kind of making light of it at that time. So I'm pretty sure that what happened was the principal, after we went there and kind of talked to him about what happened, he talked to Mr. Sanger about it, gave him kind of a little bit of a heads up if he didn't already have it. The principal's lukewarm response would set the stage for
2: the uphill battle these two friends would face through the span of this whole ordeal. An uphill battle to be believed, and an uphill battle to expose Mr. Sanger for what he really was. And finally, an uphill battle to get justice for what happened. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app. With audio companion and ability to download lessons offline.
4: and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Ninth graders
2: and best friends Cassie and Jody had just experienced something shocking and traumatizing in Mr. Sanger's classroom. Both girls saw the 40-year-old teacher take a video up Jody's skirt. The principal didn't seem all that alarmed by the prospect of what Jody and Cassie's story entailed and what the accusations were. But luckily, Jody's parents were irate and supported their daughter fully.
1: That has to be one of the worst parts. You know, not not being believed or not taken serious, just hoping that they could push it under the rug, that, that hurts a lot. Basically, I feel like my parents kind of forced the principal to call the police. I don't think that was being done by them without
4: that nudge from my parents. Thankfully, Jody's parents were adamant that the school take this seriously and pressured the principal to get the police involved. The police were called and an investigation ensued. But this begs the question, what exactly are we dealing with here? We briefly touched on the definition of upskirting, but let's expand on the implications, criminal and otherwise. Right. And it's really no
2: secret that men have been taking non-consensual intimate photos and videos of women for as long as the technology has been available. Upskirting is a form of gender-based street harassment, which is a broader term for behavior, including sexual comments, following women, and groping them. Upskirting also falls under a type of sexual behavior known as voyeurism. Voyeurism involves the illicit viewing of sexually stimulating visual imagery, which objectifies unwitting participants, and is one of the most common types of fetishes.
4: And if you're wondering how a fetish relates to a kink, a kink is pretty much an umbrella term for any type of sexual behavior, which isn't necessarily considered mainstream. So fetishism is a subtype. And having a fetish is usually perfectly psychologically healthy. A lot of people have fetishes out there, and they're all perfectly fine. But things like voyeurism become problematic when someone's right to consent or their expectation of privacy is violated. Right.
2: And perpetrators who take these kinds of images, like upskirting images, do so for their own private purposes. You know, I'm sure the reasons span the gambit. But what's more shocking is that certain offenders upload their perverted content to pornographic and fetish websites devoted to monetizing this kind of material. So that's really scary. This large-scale victimization means you could be upskirted and not only not realize it, but your genitals could be all over the internet, and you may never know. So it doesn't stop there either. A variation of this is downblousing, and I'm sure you can crack that code to understand what that one is. Obviously, you know, it has similar elements, except that offender looks down the woman's top and captures images that way. But the perpetrator doesn't have to be physically near you to do this or to record these images. In many cases, as we know and I'm sure you've heard of, men surreptitiously install cameras in public places, stairways, changing rooms, toilet seats, Airbnbs, hotel rooms. You know, possibilities are endless. And there's no real word to adequately describe how repulsive, violating, and disgusting this kind of behavior is. And when this story... Came through to us. I actually had a really. It's not going to be a similar experience, but I was at the Smith Haven Mall. I was in a Forever Twenty One, and I was paying. And I turned around. I don't know why I looked down. I was wearing a skirt or a dress, Uh and there was a guy who had a mirror on his shoe, and he had his he had his feet between my legs as I was paying, and I was like, and I, but I was young. I was still in high school. I feel like they they do this to high school kids because it's like we don't really know our recourse. We don't know what what's happening to us. Like it was super gross and I was definitely with a friend and I yelled at the guy or something and he went he like scurried away like a scared little boy, but it was a man for sure. Yeah. But I never really thought about it again cuz
4: I just I don't know, women are so used to creeps that it's like I never made a thing of it. You didn't think of it again because this happens to women all of the time. Yeah. The the mirror on the shoe, I've heard about a billion different times and now the camera is a more permanent way of doing kind of the same thing but with even more evil you know, implications of what you're doing. But it's just so fucked up that as women, we're just kind of used to this happening either to us or somebody that we care about pretty much like on a daily basis. Right. And it's one thing when a stranger does it, right? But when you're confronted with a situation
2: where it's like, you've been in this teacher's classroom every day for the entire school year, you know, and you will continue, you'll see in the next year, God knows, you know, whether it's track or or whatever. It's like when someone does this to you and you know them, it's it's an extra layer of betrayal, you know? Well, yeah,
4: especially, yeah, with a teacher where there's like a power dynamic and this is supposed to be somebody that you trust and can confide in and is like sort of like a parental figure to you if it's somebody that you're close with. Like that's completely violating any source of trust or bond that you could have. And it's Absolutely. fucking disgusting. Disgusting. So, all of this really does beg the question what causes someone to cross this kind of boundary and why would somebody do this in the first place? Well, we don't know much about voyeurism and upskirting from a psychological perspective, but we do know that voyeurs thrive on the illicit thrill of knowing something is being stolen from somebody. And this can become even more dangerous when their fetish crosses over to targeting minors, like in this situation, who are even more vulnerable.
2: Totally. And I do think the the idea of like, it's thrill-seeking and it's power and it's taking what's not yours. And, you know, we could probably all agree that there's a power dynamic and there's like a thrill-seeking component yeah and that's what we're dealing with here so needless to say all this shit we're talking about it's illegal you're not a fucking allowed to do any of this it's criminal especially to children which should be a no-brainer especially if you're in a position of authority over said children like we said their teacher it's for all these reasons that jody's parents thankfully You know, thankfully, Jody has these incredible parents and this incredible family. They demanded that the police be called to handle what happened. The thing is, the laws about upskirting are precarious, and they vary from state to state. Some have explicit upskirting laws, and in some states, if you're going to prosecute someone for something like this, they have to find a way to do it under a different legislative, you know, law. And here... It's something like capturing and distributing images of an unclothed person. That's sort of an example of how they would charge in a state that didn't have an explicit upskirting law. You have to figure out what you can extract from the act that is illegal and charge them that way. So anyways, back to our story. So Jodi remembers what happened once the police got involved. And things, while she was grateful, they were paying attention and they took this seriously. Things didn't get easier.
1: The police came to my house and interviewed me. Charges were filed. Officer Kick was at my house quite a bit, really just trying to get all the details down, any little bit of evidence that we could come up with. And so they were very helpful and took it very serious. And I'm so thankful for them.
4: Thankfully, the police took what happened seriously. And they should have. But we know a lot of times that they don't. Cassie knew exactly what she saw. And Jody knew exactly what Mr. Sanger had done to her. But unfortunately, what should have been a cut-and-dry case would turn out to be anything but.
2: Right, because telling the truth about what Mr. Sanger had done and exposing him would prove to be the start of an extremely difficult journey towards justice, a journey that spanned their entire high school experience, and an emotional journey that persists to this day. Jody and Cassie were doubted by their teachers, doubted by their peers, they were bullied, they were traumatized, and they were ostracized. And high school is hard enough as it is. So naturally this makes us really fucking angry. So what was the outcome and how did they get through it? We're going to tell you. We know where Jody went after she left Mr. Sanger's class following the incident. She went to the counselor, back to class, and eventually she went home, told her parents, and after a confrontation with the principal, the police were called. Cassie on the other hand, who had witnessed the incident, had to go to her next class after witnessing Mr. Sanger do this. And afterwards, she just stewed with anger all day.
3: I didn't see her for the rest of the day. I rode the bus home and I came home. And when I opened the door, I was like, Mom, you will never believe what happened today. So I told her about it. And my mom said, that is not good. That's not good. And my dad just said he was proud of me. And I did the right thing. I think we just talked about the craziness and the seriousness of it. I know she took it to the principal. And we actually had a school cop. We had officer kicks, so they got notified. So it, it was taken it was taken seriously. He was not at school the next day.
4: Once the police were involved, Mr. Sanger was absent from his classes as well as the extracurricular activities that he helmed. Right. And Cassie's parents were also contacted
2: by the police after speaking with Jody and her parents. And the officer handling the case went to Cassie's house too.
3: The police called my mom to notify her about my day, and about Jody's day, and the situation with the teacher, and I believe the next day, there was an officer at our house. She was there to hear my side of the story, and she was writing everything down, and she asked things, and then she would re-ask things, maybe word it a little different. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I think she was just trying to see if I wavered at all because this is a serious crime. This is like if you're accusing something of, if you're accusing somebody of something this awful, like you better be on it.
4: The police would be extremely attentive to Jody throughout the investigation. The officer handling the case spent a lot of time at Jody's house with her family, and this was all very comforting to the whole family. They would commiserate, and they were counseled, and they were kept up to date about what was going on with the case. So in cases like this, the police officer assigned to
2: the case can make literally all the difference. There are bad apples in every bunch, in every profession. But thankfully, in the case of Jody, she got a really good one, an officer who
4: would see this case all the way through. So police seized Steve's devices, and when Cassie found out how everything went down, it sounded like he was prepared for the cops to come knocking.
3: I know they went to Mr. Sanger's house later, and apparently he was, like, sitting on the porch swing, holding hands with his wife, and they're like, hey, we need to confiscate your technology devices, and they go in the house, and I guess the house was, like, kind of messy, but the countertop was all neat, and it had his laptop, it had his camera on top, like all of his technology devices, all neatly stacked in a pile.
2: So while the police didn't find any Upskirt photos on his computer or phone or other cameras in his house, you know, at least at this point, they did find an SD card in his laptop that he used for teaching. And on this SD card, there was commercial pornography on it. So... Unclear why that would be on a media card, SIM card that goes in a camera. True, truly, I don't know, but it's mm. not a great look that this is in, and it's not a—it's not a crime, right? But yeah. it's not good. It doesn't look good to have like a porn, porn on an SD card in your school laptop bag. It's not—it's not great. Not great. And after the police, you know, seized all his devices and went through everything, it's no surprised that Sanger denied this accusation. He denied it to the principal. He denied it to anyone at school. He denied it to the police. And after these devices were searched, they couldn't find any images or videos of Jody from the time, you know, that Cassie and Jody had seen this happen. But it's not that shocking. Anyone in his position would, of course, delete the content. And, you know, unfortunately, without direct evidence proving Cassie and Jody's story, Punishing Mr. Sanger for what he did would continue to be a challenge.
4: At this point, even though there was nothing tangible to prove Jody and Cassie's story, the case moved forward anyway. Mr. Sanger was suspended without pay from the school, and the school superintendent made a statement saying that the school would wait until the conclusion of the criminal proceedings before making a decision about his future employment. And it's worth noting that Mr. Sanger later tried to contest the school's decision to put him on unpaid leave from a salary of $70,000, but he failed to compel them to keep paying him. The day of Sanger's arraignment, TV news crews were in full force filming everything. He maintained his innocence and pleaded not guilty. Right.
2: So we're talking news cameras. We're talking TV crews. This is intimidating. This is a lot for two high school girls to deal with. Even more stressful was that Cassie had to share her account of what happened on the stand that day during the arraignment, all with these news cameras pointed directly at her.
3: When we went to the arraignment, I was on the stand, it was like, tell us what happened. And that video clip was all over the news.
2: So Cassie's name would be in the paper. Cassie's name would be in the news. And while Jody's name was kept from the media as the victim of this crime, you know how high school is, and you know how mean kids in this age group can be. Rumors started swirling. The whole thing was hell for Jodi, and frankly, it was hell for Cassie, too. Here's Jodi.
1: I'm... Pretty certain that everybody found out it was me. My name wasn't used in the article just because I was the victim in the case. But yeah, you know, word gets around and I definitely felt that. You know, I lost a lot of friends and didn't feel a lot of support or really much of any support besides
4: from my small group of friends and my family, of course. That was extremely difficult. Both Cassie and Jody had become the target of bullying. And the realization that many of their peers didn't believe them and chose to support Mr. Sanger just twisted the knife even further. People started joining Facebook groups defending Mr. Sanger. Here's Jody.
1: Just lots of name calling. I knew that, that people were not on my side. And if there was some that were, I was definitely not hearing from them. So I felt completely alone.
4: Cassie was really struggling with all of this as well.
3: I didn't realize how mean people could be until later. Like a lot of people did believe him. A lot of people. But, you know, kids in high school, are, they're mean. They're terrible. What my friend went through, what I went through, and it didn't even happen to me, was terrible. A lot of people said, oh, they're doing it for attention. And I'm going to tell you right now, if I was doing something for attention, I would go for being positive. I would not want this negative tension in any means. And of course, like, there's Facebook, so there was a support Mr. Sanger group. And then there's people talking mad shit about me and Jody. Luckily, her name was not in the paper, and mine was. And I don't know if they were allowed to do that because I was a child, but my name was in the paper.
4: Making things even harder, Mr. Sanger had a daughter at the school who was in her sophomore year, and while she didn't partake in the bullying, her friends did.
3: I don't know if people were mean to her. I've never asked her if people were mean to her, but I know she had a group of friends, and I know they were mean to me but but I understand now why they were they were protecting their friend. If anybody said anything to Jody, like, yeah, I would chew them out they Her friends were doing the same thing, you know, I'm not upset about it or anything now that I'm older. I understand. They were just being there. Her father is being accused of something awful,
2: and they don't believe it. The case wouldn't go to trial until the following year. And during this entire time, the emotional toll on both Jody and Cassie was immense. Let's face it, high school is miserable for a lot of kids. Bullies can make your life hell on any given day for no reason or for any reason. And given how many students loved Mr. Sanger, that's exactly what happened. Kids were cruel, and the adults orbiting this whole situation were largely passive, neutral, unsupportive. Other than, of course, the girls' families. Cassie recalls feeling powerless to help Jody deal with all of this.
3: I know she was hurting, and the thing about Jody is she's the sweetest, nicest girl. She's so kind, and she's so nice, and I know she got picked on, and like, and then when you go to court, you're really not allowed to talk about it, so it's like, can me and Jody talk about it, or do we get in trouble for talking about it? That kind of thing, like, so that was pretty hard.
4: Both Cassie and Jody were being targeted for being unwillingly thrust into an adult situation and doing the right thing. And there are no words to describe what pieces of trash bullies are under any circumstance, but the vitriol and gaslighting that they were subjected to destroyed a lot of things for both of them. It destroyed milestone events and memories that they were supposed to be experiencing in high school just as normal kids. Kids in this age group are supposed to be living a relatively carefree existence, but that's not what was going on here at all. Jody never thought the pain and sadness would end.
1: I remember telling my mom so many times that I just didn't think I was ever going to be okay or nothing was ever going to be normal for me again. And things got extremely dark for Cassie as well. I was very hurt.
3: Kids are so mean. And then you have people... Just talking mad shit about you online, and then the next day you're sitting next to them in class, and they're like, "Hey, can I borrow a pencil?" Somebody wrote on the bathroom stalls about us. I, I got spit on at a football game. Just terrible, terrible actions. And I remember telling my mom, I came home and I was I was so upset one day and I'm bawling, and I came home and I told her, I said, "Mom, I'm done." I'm going to end my life because I want them to
4: believe me. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries estate state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and android fuel up fast with factors restaurant
2: quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are no prepping no cooking or cleanup needed there's over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto and there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. While Mr. Sanger had been suspended pending the outcome of his upcoming trial, Jody and Cassie were just trying to make it through their sophomore years and dreading the trial because they would both need to testify in front of this teacher. It was Jody's teacher and, you know, a man in a position of authority to Cassie. And also his many supporters would likely be there in the courtroom to support him as well. That's a super intimidating prospect. So their hope was they would push through this And that if Sanger was convicted, there would finally be some relief because then maybe,
4: maybe everyone would start believing them. Finally. The case finally went to trial in August of 2008. In Kent County Circuit Court, amidst the glare of media attention and the Byron Center High School community, Jody, who had already been through so much, was really dreading all of this. I
1: guess scary is the best word I can describe it. It was horrible.
4: I was the first person on
1: the stand and I don't think I'll ever face something as scary as that again it was overwhelming so even though it was so scary for a high school
2: kid to be put through Jody did it she did it through tears but she got through her story and on the stand she told everyone what Mr. Sanger did and how
4: much pain she'd been through on the heels of it and how much it's affected her it was intense and emotional, but Jody told the court her trust in the education system had been destroyed. And of her difficulties in maintaining friendships at Byron Center High School, she said, I've lost over a year of my life because of this. He must never be able to do this to another girl. She also made a point that what made it even worse was Mr. Sanger's continued denials and refusal to accept responsibility. Right. And at one especially
2: confronting stage of these proceedings the skirt that Jody had been wearing on the day in question was presented as evidence and then a juror did a reenactment with the skirt so i just can't imagine being this age and having an adult hold up one of my skirts you know it's and talking disgusting. about what happened it's it's just like i feel i feel for Jody so much because it's yeah. just like that's a lot to process to be the subject of something so intense i admire her so much Uh, And Cassie, of course, besides Jody having to testify, Cassie was one of the state's star witnesses. And when she told her story, she told it exactly as she did the day it happened. And she remained unwavering when the defense tried to poke holes in her story.
3: I wouldn't change my demeanor in any means. The cross examine lawyer tried questioning me, tried mixing me up, and I just wouldn't, I wouldn't budge. I was just so focused on The questions, and I just remember my body literally shaking. And when you're trying to talk and you're just shaking so hard, I mean, I did it, but it was like that. I just remember like trying to say what I had to say and not fall over from shaking so hard. (laughs) And the same extent you said, like, everybody's watching you, there's cameras on you, and you like trip up over your
2: words sometimes. Prosecutors ultimately brought in two other students who had been in class when the incident occurred, and both of them corroborated both Cassie and Jody's stories. They said that they had seen Mr. Sanger holding a camera under Jody's skirt with the lens pointed upwards.
4: The court also heard from the school secretary, who testified that after the advisory class, Mr. Sanger walked into the office and she could hear him talking or mumbling to himself. He appeared extremely agitated when she ran into Sanger during the lunch period that occurred immediately following Jody's interaction with Sanger. He walked into the office
3: and this office lady, so kind, so nice, and she heard him say, I went too far this time.
2: So that's not great. And it's super incriminating. Like, if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't say... I might have gone too far this time. I might have went too far this time. Yeah, bad luck. You look guilty and you are, you know, most likely, right? So the court also heard that when the allegation was put to Mr. Sanger by his superiors, he reacted kind of strangely for someone who accused him of something that could effectively end his career. All he said when he was told was, oh, that was it. No outrage, no indignation,
4: no denial. It was just, oh, OK, so Jody and Cassie had now both testified and they were really relieved to have this whole thing behind them. But there were other witnesses and some of them were for the defense. People were called to defend Sanger and vouch for his character. And of course, that was so hard for the girls to listen to.
3: I was there every single day. There was one student who chose to defend him. And I knew this student. So I stepped out by myself because I did not want to hear what she had to say because i know what she was going to say she was going to lie and under oath and guess what that's exactly what she did but i knew if i was in courtroom watching this i knew that it wouldn't help me at all because my face can't let me right now i can't lie to you if i lied to you you look at my face you're like you're lying and i didn't think if i was in the courtroom with this other student saying lies, what would I do? People are going to be watching me. It's not going to look good for my case, is what I thought. So I just stepped out of the room. And then when she got off, I went back in. And then I heard about it. And then I was upset from what I
2: heard. And it's no doubt that this trial was an awful experience for both Jody and Cassie. And it was hell for their supporters. Imagine being the parents of these girls having to watch this, you know, having to watch their their children go on the stand to tell, The world what their teacher had done. However, there's a silver lining. Something incredible did happen during the course of the trial, something that would seal the outcome and ultimately Mr. Sanger's fate. So some new evidence had been miraculously recovered from an an SD card that belonged to Mr. Sanger and there were some troubling images so according to mlive.com which is a local michigan news site upskirt shots from unknown females at an intermediate time were found on this sd card meaning that these were shots of other students of their legs and up their skirts from before this happened to jody so no they didn't have the the imagery from what happened to jody but they had these so this was good news
3: I know our prosecuting team was doing stuff until the night before. Like, they found all of his little SIM cards for other cameras. Like, they were researching everything. And they found one set of pictures. So there was, like, it was either, like, two or three photos. And they're like, this is an upskirt image.
4: And in a stroke of incredible luck, there was something very recognizable in the background of one of these photos. Something that proved that the photo had been taken in Sanger's classroom. It was a poster of Albert Einstein. And it's a classroom and poster that Jody was very familiar with. Midway through the trial, they discovered
1: a memory card that had a picture of another girl in the exact same situation I was. You could tell she was standing behind his desk because you could see his classroom. Behind it, you could see his, his poster of Einstein on the wall. You know, you knew exactly where that
4: picture was taken. And it was an upskirt picture. This new piece of photo evidence was undeniable. But of course, Sanger's defense tried to explain it away and make excuses for it. Here's Cassie.
3: It was an odd photo. It was an odd photo. And then his team would kind of like turn it and be like, oh, no, that's an arm and a shirt instead of a skirt and a leg. So that, that happened. But what happened was where the Einstein photo was, that was by her her leg. That was not by her arm. Like, they did the measurements and all that.
2: So based on the evidence presented, things weren't looking great for Sanger. But oddly, his disposition was casual and relaxed throughout the trial, which I wasn't even there, and I'm irritated hearing that.
4: Yeah.
3: I remember in the newspaper, there's a picture of him. He's kind of leaning up against the desk, and I remember him smiling. He was smiling like nothing bad's going to happen to me, or he's going to get away with it. I remember a prosecutor telling us, if he goes on the stand, it's not going to be good for him, but only arrogant people go on the stand. It's very common for people who think they know better than others. They're the smartest man in the room. They will go on the stand. To look innocent, they will go on the stand.
4: Yeah, so Sanger took the stand, and his testimony was perplexing. Cassie remembers it well. He forgets to mention the whole camera in his hand part, but he mentions that I'm
3: rude. He mentions that I take his laptop. So he's, he's saying all of these things, and I don't think it's helping him at all, if that makes any sense. Like, I was rude. And he's like, yep, she was rude. Yep, she did take my laptop. But don't, no, no camera in my hand. Like, mm, yeah.
4: Bizarrely in court, Sanger was more concerned about Cassie going through his laptop than the accusations that he was actually facing. And when Mr. Sanger was asked about holding his camera, he claimed he was only flicking through photos on the camera. According to him, he said that, yes, he had a new camera in one of his hands when Jody was standing at his desk, but he wasn't taking pictures up her skirt. Right. According to him, he was flicking through photos
2: because he was putting together an end-of-the-year slideshow. <laughs> and he was doing that during the study period in his classroom. And he continued to say that the area around his desk was crowded on a rowdy last full day of school and the hand holding the camera was resting on his knee with the lens up so he wouldn't smudge it. But like, I want to say he also had a pen and was grading a test in his other hand. And I'm like, that just doesn't, it seems like you were trying to distract her with this hand and do your evil shit with your other hand. Like no one grades a test and flicks through photos at the same time.
4: That's just not, that's not how human beings do things and that's not how brains work (laughs) unless you're like a magician which he is not (laughs) a sleight of hand (laughs) he's not good at it you know and it's like he literally why would you be holding a camera
2: in one hand and grading a test with another that makes no sense unless you were trying to do it without letting Jody catch sight of it which is seemingly what he was doing
4: yeah when Sanger was confronted about the SD card that had porn on it that had been found in his laptop bag he spatted off a story about his wife throwing it in the bag by mistake, whatever. When he was confronted with what the school secretary overheard him say immediately following the event, he suggested that she was confused about which day she saw him. After both the state and defense rested, both Cassie and Jody were extremely anxious when the jurors retired to deliberate. And here's Cassie.
3: I was very confused because I didn't know who believed me and who didn't believe me. Like if, if this, if he does go free, is he allowed to teach again? Like, can this happen to somebody else? That's how I felt. I didn't want him leaving that
1: courtroom a free man.
2: On August 8th of 2008, 42-year-old Steve Sanger was found guilty of attempting to capture or distribute an image of an unclothed person. When the verdict was read, he choked back tears and dropped his head into his hands. Well, why is he choking back tears? It was Jody who deservedly was overcome with emotion when the verdict was read.
1: That was the biggest rush of emotion. I completely just broke down and me and my family were all just sobbing. You know, it felt like some vindication. It was overwhelming. I'm just so grateful that our jury believed my testimony and believed the evidence that they were hearing
4: And it seemed as though the other upskirt photo that the state uncovered in the middle of the trial had sealed Sanger's fate.
1: So that was kind of nail in the coffin is what the judge said. That was the biggest piece of evidence because it just showed like this is
4: what he's capable of. What he was capable of and that he'd done it before. And let's be real, if you did this once and then you did it twice, are we really naive enough to think that he hadn't done this a million times? He was very just like brazen about doing it.
2: Well, something interesting that Cassie told me too, was that he was just the guy. He was a teacher who always had a camera in his classroom. Yeah. And if there's always a camera around and students are always allowed to take pictures of each other, then it's not weird to have a camera around. It seems like oddly opportunistic and oddly like you're you're laying a defense before you're even charged with anything. Mm -hmm. It just sounds weird, Mm -hmm. frankly. So I would be shocked if this wasn't something he'd been doing for the over a decade he was there. Needless to say, the guilty verdict for Sanger was a huge victory and relief considering the hell that both Jody and Cassie had already been through.
4: Cassie remembers looking at Sanger once the verdict was read. I think he put his hands in his head and, like, shook his head.
3: I just remember looking at him for a second, but I just remember being, like, I was in between my parents. They kind of, like, tugged me a little bit. Like, we did it. It's done.
2: Kind of thing. And following the verdict, the judge who presided over the trial said the following... The real damage to the victim in this case was, in my opinion, your maintaining of your innocence. I've got to believe that some of those tears that she shed up here were not because of the act, but because of the consequences of the act. And as you know, and as we've told you, the response the student body had towards Jody and Cassie, it was merciless. So, yeah, the judge nailed it. Yeah.
4: So Mr. Sanger was staring down the barrel of a possible five-year prison sentence, but the state guidelines in place made it likely that he'd get far less than that. Regardless of the sentence, Steve was now a convicted felon, and as such, he was dismissed from his teaching job under Michigan state law. The defense argued for no jail time, pointing out that Steve had lost his 17-year career and home due to lack of income. Like, sorry, dude. He read a statement apologizing for putting Jody through the ordeal, but was adamant that he wasn't guilty. And the judge
2: acknowledged the suffering experienced by Sanger and his family, but reminded the court it was brought about as a result of his own actions. So yeah. <laughs> on October 7th of 2008, Mr. Sanger was sentenced to six months in jail with two and a half years probation. Cassie told us that Sanger later got work release, which he apparently violated. However, it wasn't believed that he suffered any real consequences as a result of
4: that. Sanger appealed his conviction, but thankfully the court saw through all of his bullshit and in February of 2010 affirmed the original decision. After all was said and done, their whole ordeal was finally over. The jurors had believed Cassie and Jody, and Sanger was convicted and had been punished. The girls felt so happy that the jurors had believed them after they were doubted by so many people. Right. And at this point,
2: their hope was now that maybe, just maybe, there was some vindication. Maybe things at school could go back to normal. Their story had been validated by the court, by jurors. So things must get better for them now. Well, that was Jody's hope, at least.
1: I definitely felt like things might get easier after the verdict. He was charged with capturing and distributing images of an unclothed person. And I did feel like, uh, you know, this trial convicted him of this charge, I mean, how can people not believe it? But I don't think they did, necessarily.
2: Sadly, many of Mr. Sanger's supporters remain steadfast. Some were even more angry now that Sanger's teaching career was over, and they placed the blame on Jody and Cassie. It was really disheartening and, you know, heartbreaking. Here's Jodi.
1: When they hear the evidence and they're still choosing to be on his side, I guess that's something I just... I don't know if I'll ever understand that. I guess it's just easier to accept this girl is making this up than it is to believe that this teacher that you loved or really enjoyed having a class with was capable of doing this. So I think that that's just why people made their minds up in that way. Here's Cassie.
3: I don't think this is his first time. I think he's just arrogant. He took advantage of his situation. That's what I think. He's he's a teacher who has authority, and I think he thought he could get away with anything. And what he did, no, he did not touch her, but he violated her. He he abused a student.
4: Following the verdict, Jody returned to Byron Center High, and heartbreakingly, things went from bad to worse. So much so that Jody was forced to switch schools. And Jody loved her high school before all of this happened, and she just wanted things to go back to how they were. But that didn't happen. The trial took place the beginning
1: of my sophomore year. And I went through the rest of my sophomore year at that school and started my junior year at a new district because going back to school was a huge
2: mistake. And things continued to be hard for Cassie, too. The school just didn't feel like it used to and she pushed through till graduation, but it was not a happy or easy time for her at that place.
3: The damage has already been done. You know, like, that building makes me uncomfortable. Like, it doesn't feel like a safe place to me. I mean, this happened 16 years ago, and this still affects me to this day. I feel like, kind of like my innocence was gone. Because, yes, we were teenagers, but to me, like now that I'm older, like, we were children. Like I cannot stress that enough, like we were dealing with situations our brains were not ready for, my heart was not ready for
4: and while Jody switched schools, her high school experience had been completely stained by what happened in mr. Sanger's class.
1: even though I was at this new school, I was you know not happy that that's where my life went i I wish I could have been at school with my friends just continuing on like usual. So I definitely had to get out of out of high school and just on with life before I could, like, start really moving on from it, I think.
2: However, regardless of how difficult everything was, Jody wouldn't have ever changed her decision to speak up and hold Mr. Sanger accountable.
1: To me, at that time, there was no thought for if I should speak up. That was not a question, so... I mean, even though it was the hardest thing I hope I ever have to do, I'm very glad I did it. And I did not want him to have the chance to
4: ever do this to someone else or anything worse. Cassie shares Jody's sentiments.
3: I'm really, really glad I did it because I did not want this to happen to another girl at all. Like, I... I have. I'm an aunt. I have nieces. If somebody did this to my niece, I would have lost my mind. So that really helped me, like, stick your guns. You know what? You know what you saw. Stick with it.
2: As for Byron Center High, when it came to violating teacher-student boundaries, Mr. Sanger wasn't the only stain on this high school's athletics department. And this is a really sad story. But it's odd that so much of this happened at this school. So. Only a month after Mr. Sanger's inappropriate behavior, a 29-year-old Byron Elementary School teacher and a high school athletics trainer, Joseph Fries, murdered his 29-year-old estranged girlfriend, Christy Curtis, who was also a teacher at Byron Center High. Way to traumatize a student body. So oh, my gosh. Crazy. Then in 2013, the school's basketball coach, also in the athletics department, this is 42-year-old Glenn Davis, was convicted of first-degree criminal sexual conduct After grooming and initiating a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old student, the student ended up suing the school, which settled for
4: $400,000. I mean, you owe her more than that. Jeez. My God. So neither Cassie or Jody ever regretted what they did, but it should never, ever have been so hard on either of them. It shouldn't be hard to prosecute men for preying on children, especially their students.
3: I was talking to her, The other day, because of this podcast, I'm the degree away. She's like the degree, you know. So I wasn't going to talk about my story if she was uncomfortable. And she worded it perfectly. She said, this is something I wish I could talk about, but yet it feels like you're not supposed to talk about it. We're not supposed to talk about it
1: because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Maybe there's another victim out there who might be afraid to speak up and, you know, I don't blame her because it, it was very hard. People
2: should feel uncomfortable with the way Cassie and Jody were not only treated by the adults entrusted trusted to protect them at school, but, I'm sorry, also the students who harassed and bullied them throughout high school. What's clear from this story is that Jody and Cassie were and are two incredibly courageous and resilient young women. And part of what makes this episode incredible is that there are so many stories where there's just absolutely zero repercussions for predators in schools who do things like this and don't lose their jobs. In this story, it brings me great hope that at least there was some glimmers of of justice, you know? It's not nearly enough for the pain they experienced, but he lost his career, he did get some jail time, and you know... Can you ever come back from this? I'm not really sure. Reputation-wise, probably not. Yeah. But again, not nearly enough for how much Jody and Cassie suffered. But you know what? Ultimately, both Jodi and Cassie have taken their power back, and now they've taken control of this narrative by telling their truth yet again and sharing the story. However, looking at the bigger picture, we need every single jurisdiction to prosecute more crimes like this.
4: All right. Well, a huge thank you to Jody and Cassie for being our first degrees for this week's story. If you're listening and have a story to tell, no story is too small. Please email us hello at the first You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group and join our Patreon. We're having brand new extra bonus content for you every single Tuesday and check back tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. That's right. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but
2: not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for the first degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, Michigan Live, Grand Rapids Press, Fox 17, ABC 13, CNN, Time Magazine, Wood TV. AboveTheLaw.com, the the American Psychological Association, Psychology Today, Psych Central, Healthline, Morgan Rooks Lawyers, NOLO.com, The Conversation, and the Queensland University of Technology Law Review. Gemma's from Australia, so that makes sense. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.